You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by RealSmart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of episodes, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Professor Ian Goff, visiting professor at the London School of Economics, associate at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, and Emeritus Professor of Social Policy at the University of Bath. His lecture was given as part of Plotting the Future Towards Sustainability, Environment, Society, Economy. This public lecture series is a joint initiative of four research institutes at University College Dublin, the Earth Institute, the Geary Institute for Public Policy, the Humanities Institute and the Institute for Discovery. You can listen to previous lectures in the series on the UCD Humanities Institute's website and podcast channels on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, go to future.ucd.ie. Professor Goff's lecture took place in UCD on the 26th of February 2020. The lecture, Climate Change, Inequality and Sustainable Wellbeing, was based on his most recent book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, Climate Change, Capitalism and Sustainable Wellbeing. I want to start off by talking about the dilemma uh, c- climate breakdown and I- inequality, the relationship between these two, um, and that inequality is both global and national. Um, and then I want to spend more of the time on two um, meta solutions to this meta wave forward. The first is a, a supply side approach, Green New Deal, and the second is a demand side approach, which I call recomposing consumption in this book. And then I'll, I'll come to some conclusions. So um, the twin dilemmas uh, we are faced with global heating, climate breakdown, ecological crisis. Um, And secondly, that's a relatively new set of problems. Uh, And then there's a much more longer term problem of inequality, which has both a global dimension. Um, I'll be talking about some aspects of that uh, and a within country dimension. the rich world left behind regions and so forth. And both of those, these huge challenges are fostering growing protests at the present time. And the the basic bottom line is it's inconceivable that we can address one of these issues without addressing the other. To start off with is Kate Rowe's donut diagram from her book Donut Economics, which you may well know, um, which illustrates a safe and just space for humanity between an ecological ceiling and a social foundation. The ecological ceiling, she looks at the nine um, planetary challenges identified by the Stockholm Institute. Uh, They're listed, shown around the outside. Climate change is only one of those. And one of the problems of my book, in a way, is that I only do look at climate change, not at biodiversity or water supplies or acidification of oceans. So that needs to be borne in mind. So that, 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 that's the ceiling, but at the same time, there's a social foundation. Millions of people uh, suffer uh, tr- tremendous Ill, ill-being and unmet needs in the world today. Uh, and at the same time as 
the ecological challenge, there's the social challenge of bringing everyone up to some decent, sufficient minimum standard in various aspects of social life. Um, she, uh, Kate Roweth, uses the Sustainable Development Goals to illustrate the social foundation here, or some of them. So we need to stay between in, in this space. Um, this is a picture of uh, temperature rises since 1884. You, I'm sure you know all this. Uh, anything which is yellow or orange or red on here indicates a rise in temperature over the last century. Um, and I mean, a striking feature here is the colossal increase in temperatures in the Arctic area, uh, which threaten uh, severe tipping points, if not guarded against. Um, and this is caused by uh, emissions, as everyone knows, predominantly of CO2, but also of other greenhouse gases. Um, the impacts are already uh, being seen. Um, the, the direct impacts, sea level rise, species loss, storm damage, water stress, wildfires, the, the risks to human livelihoods and well-being, following from that, food availability, uh, water security, health, poverty, and then the more indirect impacts of climate migration, conflict, and so forth. Um, uh, I'm assuming that all this is, is pretty well known. Um, this complicated uh, diagram I've, I just found the other day, uh, don't worry about it too much, it basically shows the current trends of uh, emissions of greenhouse gases um, between 2020 and 2030. Sorry, it's missing from the bottom here. Just the next 10 years, um, the lines flowing upwards are the current policies, current scenarios for increases. The slightly lower lines here show the uh, NDC scenarios if every country sticks to its nationally determined contribution announced at the Paris conference. Um, and then these other lines show the necessary um, trajectory of emissions if we're to meet uh, two degrees centigrade rise in global temperatures or 1.5 degrees. It's, it's an almost impossible thought that we can move from this to this, but that's what's, that's what's required. And if this is left even a few years, then the fall has to be even greater because it's a total quantum of greenhouse gases, the stock in the atmosphere which determines global temperatures, um, and the flows are feeding this. I should also say that these are net emissions, um, so they um, exclude um, uh, emissions uh, absorbed by sinks of various kinds, especially forest and agricultural land, so there are, there are other policies which can be used to try and achieve these low-impact um, scenarios. Um, now, moving on to inequality, um, we need to get a, a picture of the way in which these emissions are distributed across the population and, and the responsibilities for it. Um, let me turn to, to this next diagram first. When we're looking at responsibilities, we must turn from production-based to consumption-based emissions. It sounds a technical issue, but it's not. Production emissions are emissions from particular national territories, such as the UK or Ireland. Consumption-based emissions are the emissions 
involved in the goods which we consume in these territories. Uh, and as you can see from this diagram, um, there's a very clear inequality in the world here, almost a perfect inequality between the OECD countries on the left and the rest of the world on the right. Um, we, uh, in the north, global north, uh, consume more than we produce, uh, and that is reflected in our consumption-based emissions. The opposite is the case in the rest of the world. So global outsourcing over the last 30, 40 years has led to this um, very strong mismatch between the two. So then, if we look at um, consumption-based emissions and rank everyone in the world from richest to poorest, you get this sort of picture. The, the top 10% on the world scale, which is everyone in this room, um, accounts for about 50% of total emissions, and the bottom half account for about 10%. Um, and so we can speak about a double injustice. Those nations, classes, and groups least responsible for past embodied emissions are most likely to be adversely affected. That's a huge generalization, of course. Um, but it roughly holds. Um, and that's the, with the double injustice. And to this I add a, a triple injustice, and that's what I'll spend quite a bit of time on, that the policies to mitigate uh, this climate change can themselves exacerbate inequalities and harm vulnerable households and regions, or, or indeed countries. Uh, so this is the, the dilemma we, we juggle with here, given this. I just want to say that uh, if we look at um, the effect of income inequality on emissions of countries, uh, higher income countries, it seems, higher inequality raises emissions, everything else being equal. So inequality itself raises emissions in high income countries. So it's an added factor that the inequality, which has risen since 1980, itself has pushed up emissions in the rich world. I'll come back to these issues of uh, inequality and how it interacts with mitigation uh, later on. <laughs> so a fundamental argument in the book um, is that there are three essentially sort of meta-strategies for dealing uh, with uh, a climate run breakdown, climate change. And the first is, is, is green growth, which is essentially uh, a decoupling argument we decouple uh, rising output from emissions. So we have falling emissions and rising output. We can achieve that graph. Um, and you could call this ramping up the echo efficiency of production. And of course it's crucial and essential and covers all areas of life, from um, electric cars to, to buildings, to agriculture, to um, renewables and so forth. All this is very important. But I argue uh, in the book that there's two problems with green growth. Um, one is it can't work fast enough. It cannot bring down emissions at the rate that's required. Um, and the second that is that it's unethical. It doesn't tackle fundamental inequalities, especially of consumption, uh, across the world today. So we have to go beyond it. And the beyond is usually the third one here, post-growth. Um, we have to move to a steady state economy and reduce 
absolute levels of consumer demand in the rich world uh, in order to achieve uh, a stable uh, economy on a finite planet. And um, I've got lots of sympathies with the post-growth argument. I think at some stage it's inevitable that we confront it. But um, I also look at the world today of hyper-consumption, hyper-growth, a global capitalist economy, uh, and ask myself, how can we do this? How can we achieve this in the next 10 years or so? We're talking about very tight time frames. And so I've interposed between the two uh, a second strategy, which I call recomposing consumption, which is to switch from high to low carbon uh, consumption patterns within the rich world without necessarily slowing down the growth in overall consumption. Um, and in this, the rest of this talk, I want to talk about the first and the second here. I'm not going to be talking about uh, post-growth. Though there's an overlap between the second and the third. So I start off then with the, uh, what I'll call for short, the Green New Deal uh, approach, um, and look in some detail at that. Um, and my argument here is that uh, this sort of classic view, and I'm now talking from a social policy point of view, this classic view of social policy as dealing with the, re the distributional dilemmas of climate mitigation policies uh, won't do. We have to get away from this notion of compensation to talk about eco-social investment. Um, the myth of carbon pricing and compensation. Um, most economists that I speak to still say that there's one basic solution to this problem, which is to raise the price of carbon, uh, either through taxes or uh, trading uh, schemes. Um, and I've no doubt that it, it would help. Uh, but... I mean, the sort of prices we're talking about, $100, $200 a tonne of carbon, are sort of way, way beyond what exists at present. But the other basic problem is that carbon pricing is almost always uh, regressive because the big three necessities of heating, food and basic transport are all very carbon-intensive activities. And it surprised me to find they're more carbon-intensive than most uh, luxury goods. I mean, when we think of uh, flying and so forth, that's not the case. But overall, these are, be, these are big carbon uh, areas of life. So that, the economist's answer is almost always, always, well, compensate the losers. So we go for compensation. And I'm quite convinced that compensation cannot work here for various reasons. First of all, a large number of the factors which affect um, a, a household's um, energy, uh, domestic energy emissions or its food emissions, or its transport emissions, um, are, are very many and varied. Uh, uh, and to compensate for those households is extremely difficult, if not impossible. If you do try to do it through targeted compensation schemes, then that enhances poverty traps. Um, so you have more families um, being trapped in, in, in poverty because they're facing high marginal rates of taxation. If you do it through a universal carbon dividend, um, they're very tiny amounts, and it amounts, I think, to, to rough justice. 
And finally, the cost will increase year by year. As carbon prices rise, you've got to do more and more compensation to uh, prevent um, low-income families and areas losing out. So um, I, I don't see compensation as a way, as a way forward. So we have to move uh, to um, investment in, in carbon mitigation. Um, but to do that in, in a progressive way. Um, so we can do this by realising the synergies there are that exist at the present time. Um, and this comes from an EU study, uh, the potential synergies they list. Um, first of all, employment. There's employment in all the new green industries of various kinds. Of course, there will be a loss of employment in the traditional fossil-rich uh, industries, but they consider that on balance there will be a growth of jobs, green jobs, sorry, a net growth of all jobs. Um, then there's air pollution. Uh, then there's energy poverty. There's nutrition, sustainable livelihoods, and the, the, com the reduction in conflicts and climate-induced migration. This is their list, and so the, the argument is that uh, if we pursue the right policies, we can achieve improvements in well-being um, at the same time as reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. <clears throat> um, and the EU is strong here by saying we must mainstream these. These are not ex post remedial action, the compensation I was talking about. This has to be right in from the start. Um, and so we have eco-social investment. Um, and so I would argue that investment has priority over carbon pricing. We've got to move towards uh, front-loaded investment. And I was struck here by the example of the London congestion charge, which wasn't a, a particularly a, a, an environmental policy, but um, the, uh, the, the London Council realised that before bringing that in, they had to supply necessary improvements in public transport and 400 new buses were bought and put on, on the, uh, the London network. Uh, so you had upfront investment first, then you raised the charges. Um, so the, the key eco-social investments we're talking about, retrofitting the housing stock, that's 27 million dwellings in, in Britain, many of which are very poorly insulated. As public transport, there's decarbonising food production. And all of these require upfront investment, um, which raises a whole set of political economy questions. Uh, clearly, it involves bond finance by, by um, governments or other agencies. Um, there's the possibility of green quantitative easing uh, and so forth. And I think this is now accepted in the various Green New Deal proposals in the UK, the US, and now in the the EU's uh, Green Deal proposal. Now, looking at the EU a bit, because you're in the EU, we are not going to be, um, it's called the Green Deal, not the Green New Deal. But they've identified a green investment gap um, of 260 billion a year. So over 10 years, that's 2.6 trillion euros. Um, uh, uh, that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, that needs to be invested now. Um, the private sector will be very important, um, but the public role will be essential because some of these goods 
that it generated are public goods. Um, the EU is important, but most of this a major role will have to come from the member states. So it seems to me that this implies a radical reform of the, of the current fiscal fr framework, the Growth and Stability Pact. I mean, rethinking the golden rule, making transitional exceptions, and so forth. And uh, Tim Jackson, I see, has recently pointed out that uh, this 2.6 trillion which is needed was almost exactly the sum which the ECB, the, uh, the bank, um, released in asset purchase programs after the financial crisis with no particular worries. Uh, we're looking for something similar now but to be invested not in um, assets, existing assets and rising house prices but in useful um, infrastructure. So this is the EU uh, Green Deal. Um, I also in the book look at ancillary policies which will make that um, more progressive. Um, I, talk a bit, uh, I look at uh, social tariffs for electricity, gas and water. Why not um, have variable tariffs so the first X units of electricity, gas and water are at a, a lower rate and then su subsequent units are charged at a higher rate. Um, it would be interesting to see uh, how some experiments in that work out. Rationing is another possibility which is was much discussed, but isn't so much now. And then I'd add here um, that to rebuild and extend the European welfare states, the welfare states we have are themselves um, very important climate policies. They aid climate adaptation, they enhance resilience, um, and that, so they're a precautionary strategy in their, in their own right. Um, so I'm talking about sort of an extras uh, on, on top of the existing welfare states. Okay, so now um, I want to turn to the second area, which is recomposing consumption. Um, as I've said, all, all that I've spoken about so far is absolutely essential, but will be inadequate. It's insufficient and it doesn't tackle pricing, luxuries, inequality. So um, what do I mean by this? Well, here's one uh, example. And apologies to all of you who have um, SUVs at the moment. Um, this, this is a calculation by the World Bank of all places. If uh, 40 million SUVs in the US were, charged, were changed for ordinary cars, all people in the world could have electricity within that emissions framework. 1.6 billion people who don't have access to electricity could have it. Um, if there was this switch in SUVs. And just recently, the IEA have come out, the International Energy Agency, um, saying that um, the growth of SUVs, not just in the US, but throughout the rich world and throughout much of the world, um, uh, was a, a major contributor to global carbon emissions. Um, so that's just one example of what I'll call a luxury, which um, has, something has to be done about. So we must begin to recompose consumption um, by switching from high to low carbon goods and services. Um, now, one way of, of doing this is to develop demand-side, or sorry, not one way, this is equivalent to a demand-side policy. And the... Uh, <coughs> Thinkers in this area distinguish supply-side and demand-side policies 
and the new IPCC report will have a chapter on demand-side policies for the first time. Um, and it will have some version of what's called the improve-shift-avoid, or sometimes the avoid-shift-improve um, model of thinking. It's been developed in Germany in, uh, mainly rela in relation to transport. So improving um, transport uh, is moving towards, for example, electric-built uh, vehicles. You have an improved um, echo impact of the existing fleet of vehicles. Shifting goes beyond that to talk about replacing cars with other forms of mobility, walking, cycling, public transit, and so forth. Um, Avoid goes beyond that by looking at ways of avoiding reducing mobility uh, absolutely. Integrated transport systems may relate new forms of urban design. Uh, teleworking is another way. Um, so the argument is that in, in several areas we can apply this framework, moving, well, improving, then shifting, and then avoiding um, to other areas such as housing and and food and so forth. Um, a demand-side approach. This is, has many advantages. Uh, it's been noted for some time now that um, this sort of scenario, teleworking, travel avoidance, dietary shifts, food waste reductions, um, can reduce uh, emissions very, very substantially um, in, in the EU. And there's quite a lot of evidence on this. Um, it's also lower cost uh, compared with, with supply-side measures. Um, it, it's also less risky. It, there's no reliance on unknown technology. And the unknown technology, which they're referring to there, is uh, bioengineering uh, with carbon capture and storage. This is the, this is the unknown technology, which uh, features very highly in uh, supply-side scenarios to reduce the chances of dangerous climate change. And at the same time, these can improve uh, well-being in, in a variety of ways, through, through diet, mobility, and so forth. So there's um, co-benefits. Um, but this, just as the, uh, what I say? Just as the supply-side measures, the green growth measures, must also be just so must the recomposing consumption measures. Um, and this takes us back to issues of need and greed uh, discussed in the book. Professor Shu at Oxford says, it is not equitable to ask some people to surrender necessities so that other people can retain luxuries. The costs ought to be partitioned into costs that impinge upon necessities for the poor and costs that only impinge upon luxuries for the wealthy. Um, so there has to be an ethic which enters into this um, model at this stage. Um, and to, to, but to make that distinction between necessities and luxuries is to challenge, I said here, the entire edifice of neoclassical preference theory. Um, the, the, the words necessities and luxuries have no meaning in, in uh, economics. So this requires an alternative um, theory of, of value. I argue, and that is of uh, the value of human need. Um, and so this is the digression, but it, this is a large part of the book, but this is just one slide. Um, 
there are universal human needs, I argue. Um, and this is in an earlier book with Len Doyle called A Theory of Human Need. Um, they're the universal prerequisites to avoid harm, to permit creative action, and to enable participation in whatever forms of life people have. Doesn't matter. So health, autonomy, and participation are the three basic universal needs which we identify. And other people identify too, um, such as Martha Nussbaum, although she calls them something a bit different. Um, then, given that framework, a set of, a, quite a, a wide set of universal material needs uh, follow from this. There are also immaterial needs, such as security and childhood, but um, there's a set of material needs, housing, food, uh, and so forth, which flow from this. And the argument in, in, the, in the book, um, in the needs book, and also in Heat, Greed and Human Need, is that these human needs trump present and future consumer preferences. They have more moral weight than, than human preferences. So that's the, the sort of argument in, about, in, <coughs> in one minute. Um, having said that, needs are clearly and always distinguished from needs satisfiers, the goods and services and activities and relationships which uh, generate uh, better nutrition, better shelter, better security and so forth. Need satisfiers are almost always um, not universal. They're specific to time and place and culture and context. So that, that's the basic model. Um, now, if that's accepted, then the question is, it focuses on need satisfiers, goods and services. And how do we uh, distinguish necessities and luxuries within a democratic society and within a, within a within a consumer society, which has no is. The argument um, we put forward a long time ago is that a dual strategy, you have to bring citizens and experts together. Um, and this was written about 30 years ago. Um, so there's the idea of citizens' forums uh, of some kind. Uh, and, of course, the modern version is so interesting that this idea is now... Um, risen up the agenda, mainly uh, following the Irish example, the Irish Citizens' Assembly, it was an extraordinary um, development, which is now being followed by uh, Macron in France uh, on the issue of climate change, uh, and now in UK, in a Citizens' Assembly established by six um, committees of the House of Commons. Um, so, uh, so my... How do you challenge uh, consumer sovereignty is, is the issue. Uh, and uh, the only answer I can see is to have uh, assemblies in which you have expert as well as citizens' input to determine these things. Now, there's some rather cruder forms of uh, this which have uh, already occurred in the social policy field. Um, one is identifying necessities, which has been going on in the UK for over... 12 years now at Loughborough University, the minimum income standards work, which has groups reaching of different household types, which reach a consensus on an enormous bundle of um, goods. Um, how many rooms do, do people need, families of particular sizes, ages of children, uh, how, much, um, how much lighting do these, and heating, 
should there even such things as should there be floor coverings or should there be lampshades on the lights? Um, to, the idea is what's required for a minimum um, standard of living in Britain today. Um, and they're pretty um, consistent over time. Things change. Mobile phones are now clearly seen as a necessity by all groups. But um, the vast range of goods and services hasn't changed very much. So I think there's a lot of um, expertise available on what a minimum uh, bundle of goods is. Um, and this is also uh, a slightly different approach called the reference budget approach. It's being adopted in seven or more EU countries. Um, what about an upper line? Is it then possible to identify luxuries uh, in, this, in this way? Well, we've just um, published a, a short pilot report in Britain, it's available now, um, which follows six focus groups, organised six focus groups, to explore whether there could be a, a consensus on what is a luxury range of goods and what indicates uh, riches, so, which is above the minimum, above comfort levels, but it uh, indicates riches in contemporary Britain. And there was a considerable... Um, consensus on this. Uh, that's this uh, line D here. The super rich, they, they knew about, everyone talked about the super rich, but we were talking about something a bit more modest than that, the riches within Britain today. Um, it was things like having a second home, either abroad or in Britain, um, five or more holidays a year, a housekeeper, various things like that. You can read it in the, in the report. So it was, it was looking at... Um, uh, various uh, goods and services. It didn't attach a money line to that, though. That's something we're looking into. So there was a descriptive consensus, but there was no normative consensus that we could uh, see. Um, there was no normative view on whether this was desirable or not. Um, but this was an area with very little um, expert input, and it was not a long way away, really, from um, a, a citizens' assembly type approach. Anyway, I put these forward as sort of concrete examples of how one might start to think about the range of consumption uh, in, in the developed world. Um, this will also require some uh, consumption-based eco-social policies, I call them, uh, and there are two here. Um, one, is, one way is to increase the social, like, social consumption, the amount which is delivered uh, through publicly, uh, through public services of various kinds. This is the argument for universal basic services, which Anna was talking about uh, earlier this morning. Um, and there seem to be quite strong arguments here um, in, on both equality grounds and sustainability grounds. For example, I've just uh, seen some recent figures on the, um, the carbon footprint of the American healthcare system and European healthcare systems. And they're enormously different. The American healthcare system's carbon footprint per person um, is uh, per pound spent, I think, per dollar, is um, two and a half to three and a half times higher than that for European countries. So there's a very clear difference here. Um, so that one is one way is to increase the social component of consumption, but the bulk of consumption is still, of course, private. And this is the argument of a consumption corridor put forward by um, 
some researchers in, in Geneva and Germany and elsewhere, uh, which I think is a very interesting one. It's the Skorai uh, group, as it's called, uh, and which can be looked at. So the argument is to define a corridor between minimum standards, allowing every individual to live a satisfactory life, and maximum standards, which will stay within ecological limits. Um, and I think that's a very interesting sort of field of research. To back this up, uh, in the book I discuss a whole uh, set of policies, um, one of which is a smart VAT. We've, um, we have a consumption tax, it's called VAT, why not start varying it according to the uh, types of goods and services? Um, and then uh, frequent uh, flyer taxes uh, and, and other uh, curbs on high carbon luxuries, and perhaps reduced work time might come in here. Um, so, uh, to try and draw this together. Uh, so first of all, um, I think that there's a set of national policy options in, in the global north which can be undertaken. Um, it involves a Green New Deal investment programme, upfront investment for the big three, housing, transport, food. Um, but this will require new forms of finance and new changes in the economic model of um, the EU and the austerity model generally. Social tariffs, smart VAT, other forms of progressive taxation, um, increased free uh, public provisioning, four-day week, and citizens' assemblies on just transition policies. Uh, I'm not going to argue them here, but I'm just... I wanted to show that there, you know, there were sort of some options, some policy options here, which uh, I hope we can discuss when I finish. Um, then there's the question of equivalent sort of um, studies in the, in the global south. And uh, Narasimha Rao in Vienna and Julia Steinberger and her team in, in Leeds and others uh, are doing lots of, of good work here. Um, this is Narasimha's uh, proposals for a minimum uh, standards in various need satisfiers uh, in India and the global south. 30 meet square metres of floor space, heating and cooling, keeping temperatures at night below 26 degrees C. He sees this as a, as a crucial health issue coming up now in uh, some parts of the south. Continuous electricity, not electricity only for four hours a day, um, a refrigerator, one mobile phone, and so on and so forth. So there's a similar exercises going on in other parts of the world. Um, but these, these standards are, are, of course, lower than the standards which the Loughborough and EU studies are showing in the, in the north. And when you've got this bundle of goods, then you can estimate the energy needs required to meet those, and then you can estimate the emissions which would be required to meet them. So it, it would seem that meeting um, needs on this basis, um, decent living standards, is, is, is still possible uh, within the world. So the, what am I saying, the Raworth move towards the safe and just space it w would seem to be possible well, if these are the sort of standards which would be ge uh, generalised across the world. Um, but it does require tackling luxury emissions, or, if you like, the greed. 
to use the term. Do I have to quote Gandhi? There's plenty on this planet for everyone's needs, but not for everyone's greed. It's, it's, um, so it requires um, this ethical uh, normative approach as well. And on the other hand, it's very important to realise that um, there's a lot of new rich, new super rich in, in the developing world. And Chakravarti, that this is estimate for some time ago, thinks that one half of all high emitters will soon be living outside the OECD. These are rich Indians, Chinese, Latin Americans, and so forth. So it's not just uh, it's just not it's not just the north and the south. There's that, and then there's within country inequalities. Um, so. But having said that, the, the wide differences, the differences are extraordinary. Um, uh, Tim Jackson and Angela Druckmann calculated it. If, if everyone in Britain was on the Loughborough minimum standards line, then we would still be emitting 7.3 tonnes per person per year of, of, um, of carbon, whereas, whereas the goal should be something like two tonnes or less. Um, so just because of our past growth and expectations and standards of living and all the built-in sort of uh, infrastructures and so forth, it's a high carbon uh, line. Um, and yet the IPCC latest estimate for the available global carbon budget is 420 billion tonnes. If you divide this figure between all the people today and all the years left this century, it comes to 0.7 tonnes per person. So that, that, that figures, I just put that there to illustrate how some of the dilemmas still, still exist. And also, Europe's progressive policies seem to be linked to our export of emissions, which I started off by saying that we're not responsible for all our emissions. Um, this is a... Don't worry about the details, but this is a, some extraordinary work going on at Leeds. Um, which looks at biophysical boundaries transgressed along the bottom and social thresholds achieved um, on the vertical axis. The goal is this uh, top left-hand corner, and societies with uh, high levels of, of social thresholds and no physical boundaries transgress. All the countries, no country in the world comes anywhere near that, but you can see the differences uh, in, in, between the three countries illustrated here, India, China, and the EU. Um, uh, India, uh, very few biophysical boundaries transgressed, but very, very poor standards of need satisfaction. The EU was the opposite, um, and China somewhere in between. And it illustrates then that there are, there are different uh, tra trajectories which must be followed in order to achieve this nirvana in the top left-hand corner. Um, we, we're not talking about the same things in different parts of the world. Um, so for conclusion, um, I wonder whether to put this down. It seems a bit hard, but there is no we. Um, in the rich world, um, Green New Deal and supply-side policies are essential, uh, and they're more in keeping with current economy and economic models. But demand-side consumption policies are also urgently needed and ethically convincing, yet pose profound challenges. Um, but when we turn from the rich world to the, re the rest of the world, we are talking about two or more, three or four or five 
different minimum consumption lines because of just the reality of where we start from. And so the argument must be that we, we, we think about these lines uh, and then we go for contract and converge over time. Uh, the goals remain rather safe and just space, but there are different roadmaps and routes to achieve them. But an ethical transition program then would require that they converge as rapidly as possible. Uh, and this must involve, I think, renewed scrutiny of the luxury or riches line in the north uh, and the south. We have to marry uh, concerns with um, climate mitigation and uh, planetary good management with these ongoing uh, ethical concerns about inequality. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Plotting the Future podcast. You can listen to previous lectures in the series on the UCD Humanities Institute's website and on future.ucd.ie.